Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. I can't help but giggle with that new introduction that we have. Thank you, Vicar, for putting all that together, and we rewarded Vicar for not being with us today. Uh, he's doing preschool chapel right now. I'm sure he'll join us partway through. But uh, this is Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. Uh, eventually, we'll have Vicar Daniel Golden up here with us, too. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Every week, we take a look at the upcoming readings in the church year. We look at them devotionally. We look at them as how we might preach them and proclaim them and understand them in a law-gospel manner and always at the heart, core, soul, and center of all of God's Word is Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior from sin. Welcome once again, Pastor Moline. Thank you. I uh, see that uh, you are among the living. I know the flu bug has been uh, working its way uh, tremendously through your family. And uh, tell us your secret as to how you are the only one in your family to avoid uh, being bitten by this flu bug. Well, as soon as I say something, then I'm sure I'll have it the next uh, hour or two after that. So I, I just keep my mouth shut and pray. <laughs> <laughs> the grace of God. That's the right. The grace of God. There you go. My, uh, my uh, theory on that is uh, large quantities of very, very cheap, very, very smoky, very, very stinky cigars. That's my secret. So uh, we're looking at the readings today for the transfiguration of our Lord. And uh, the season of Epiphany is variable. Sometimes it's very long. Sometimes it's very short. And what determines that is the date of Easter. And uh, when we come back next week, we'll take a look at the uh, probably the main visible difference between the one-year series and the three-year series when we start in the pre-Lent time with the Jesima Sundays. But we're not there yet. The culmination of the Epiphany season is the transfiguration of our Lord. And uh, Pastor, do you want to make any comments about the, the day uh, the celebration, the transfiguration of our Lord before we actually dig into the gospel reading? Well, I think it's one of those ones that gets lost, and that's too bad. Um, it's a very important day. It is kind of the culmination of what Epiphany is, is because um, Epiphany, the season, is uh, about revealing who Jesus is, and all this builds, and we hear more and more about Christ and the miracles that he's doing, and then it culminates with the transfiguration where who Jesus is kind of leaks out, if you will. It's revealed. It's no longer hidden. Uh, it's no longer Deus absconditus, but instead it is Deus revelatus. The hidden God becomes revealed on transfiguration. And so it's kind of a neat way that happens in the, uh, the lectionary. The season of Epiphany begins with a bright light, a new light, a new star that guides the Magi to the uh, baby, the infant Jesus, and now we see that Jesus indeed is the light of the world. Let's stop talking about it and dig into God's word. Matthew 17, 1 to 9. Pastor? <clears throat> 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it, it is good that we are here, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Okay, there you have it, the account from Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 9, the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, There Jesus was uh, transfigured before them, verse 2 of Matthew 17. That is, uh, that is kind of an, uh, a unique or a, an unusual word in the Greek language, Pastor. Um, what significance is this transfigured word? Well, uh, in the Greek, the word is the same word that we get metamorphosis from. Uh, in other words, he was changed, uh, his appearance was different, and so it, it is kind of a unique word in that regard. It um, carries all that um, meaning with it that metamorphosis might be the appearance changed, the uh, um, Boy, if we want to talk about it in Aristotelian language, maybe that'd be the way to do it. Uh, that's what I was thinking. That um, what we could say is that the substance is still the same. He's still the same person. He's still the same um, individual in that regard. He's still Jesus, and yet the appearance, the accidents, the things that we see uh, outwardly, that is completely different. Uh, and so the, the word there implies all of that. And interestingly as well, it's in the aorist passive voice, uh, which means this has happened to him. Uh, this change is taking place, and, and uh, they're witnessing it and seeing it happen there. So, so when, I, uh, when I hear that word metamorphosis, I think back to my early days of high school biology class, and I'm thinking of when a caterpillar uh, turns into a cocoon and then the cocoon turns into a butterfly or a moth or what, whatever it is. And uh, that process there, that changing process, is the metamorphosis. Is that, is that uh, a good way or a bad way to, uh, to think about this transfiguration word? Well, I think it's, it's helpful for us to consider, but even more than that, rather than um, we, we could think of it that way in the terms that what Jesus really is is being shown. Um, he's becoming or he's revealing who he is in its fullness and and maybe we can think of that but the the fact is is that a caterpillar and a butterfly are not necessarily the same thing just like a tadpole and a frog are not the same thing and yet in this case the real reality is being revealed and yet they're still the same 
thing. Jesus is still Jesus. And so that in that way, it's, it's maybe a little incomplete to think of it that way. And I'm not saying it very well because it's a hard thing for us to wrap our language around. Sure. And not only a hard thing to wrap our language around, but to wrap our brain around. Reason cannot fathom the fact that God is in the flesh among us. And so he gives us little glimpses. We've had glimpses all the way through the season of Epiphany. Every miracle of Jesus uh, is a glimpse of his glory and uh, the signs and the wonders that we have. And now we have probably the fullest manifestation of his glory that we're going to get until Easter. And so... um, Our text starts out in Matthew 17, and it says, after six days. You know, uh, the gospel writers do this quite often, and uh, they, they take us from one event or one uh, thing that's going on to another chronologically. Uh, where are we at in Jesus' ministry when, by the time we get to Matthew 17? Well, um, what's happened right before this is important in that it's one of the times that Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He's starting to teach them about the cross. That happens then right after um, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, and this is speaking in terms of Matthew's gospel, because I think the ordering is a little bit different in uh, um, some of the other gospels. Not that they're wrong or anything like that, it's just in a question of how are things recorded for us by the uh, evangelists. So Jesus tells them he's going to the cross. Uh, Peter says, that's not going to happen, and and Jesus rebukes Peter. And then he says, if anyone comes after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it's six days after these words are spoken that this happens. The uh, minor festival of the confession of Peter always takes place during the season of Epiphany. And I think it's interesting to note that this confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, uh, is in the chapter right before here. And then we have Jesus manifesting himself, giving him a glimpse of what it means that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet the disciples still don't get it. Um, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Pastor, we see this. Uh, Not often, but we see this on a fairly regular basis where Jesus takes these three disciples, sometimes called the inner circle, uh, takes these three disciples by themselves off away from the crowds and away from the other disciples, and then something big happens. Uh, Comments or thoughts on why Jesus does this? Um, well, he, he takes the three off by themselves to show them these things and to teach them, but I, I think even more significant is the fact that it goes up onto a high mountain. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he always um, writes this when there's something important that's about to happen, and so it's the same with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up onto the mountain and began to teach them, and we see that again here. Uh, we also could... Uh, emphasize that uh, uh, Mount Golgotha isn't really a mountain, but it's spoken of in that way um, because it's an important thing that's happening. And so that that signifies to us that we ought to pay attention to what's happening because it's about to tell us 
something very important. Okay, so we got the mountain. So mountain should be a, 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 a flag for us to, to give us something. And it seems to me, you know, throughout the pages of Scripture, uh, we see that, uh, you know, don't believe anything just because one person says it. you got to have at least two witnesses to something before you believe it. And Jesus takes nothing to chance that when when these big things, uh, certain healings, the transfiguration, uh, in deep inside the Garden of Gethsemane, he always has three so that we have witnesses that are provided. Is there is there something to that with regard to uh, uh, witnessing these events? Well, uh, when you have three witnesses, it's hard to... Um come up with a conspiracy because someone can always be bought off maybe i don't know uh there's probably something in there that it's the legal amount of witnesses you have to have to verify something but off the top of my head i couldn't come up with it okay okay so uh we've we've been introduced to the gospel reading matthew 17 1 to 9 for the transfiguration of our lord we have something um uh amazing maybe borderline bizarre with regard to what's going to happen on top of this mountain, this high mountain, Jesus and the three disciples, the inner circle. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. to K-N-N-A-L-P, 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, and recently joining us, Vicar Gold, and we're here looking at the readings for the upcoming Sunday worship in our congregation. We're looking at the readings for the transfiguration of our Lord. There are some congregations that will be observing the fourth Sunday in Trinity this year. Uh, this week, this coming week, and that's the way you'll be able to tell that they're on the three-year series of readings, in the one-year series of readings, and that's what we do here at Good Shepherd, and with our program, Proclaiming the One, uh, we're celebrating transfiguration. In our previous segment, we talked a little bit about the season of Epiphany, transfiguration, how that fits in, and some isagogical material with regard to our text. Vicar, would you want to read those words once again? Matthew 17, 1 to 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. All right. Thank you, Vicar. We have those words, the transfiguration of our Lord, Matthew 17, 1 to 9. Pastor, uh, the face of Jesus in this metamorphosis, this transfiguration, the face of Jesus shone like the sun, and even his clothes became white as light. Uh observations with regard to the face and even the clothing of Jesus shining brightly. Well, uh, these two things indicate to us that this is the face of God and the clothing of God. And we see uh, other places in Scripture, for example, in the book of Revelation, that when God is pictured, this is the way that he's pictured. Even in Isaiah, this is the way God is pictured. And so this is telling us very clearly that in this man, Jesus Christ, is also the second person of the Trinity, God. Uh, And they're the same they're the same, um, and and that's what we want to take out of this particular text. We have a conversation going on. Not only is Jesus shining like the sun, but uh, behold, uh, get your attention, look ye here, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus. The significance of Moses and Elijah carrying on a conversation. Now, I've always wondered, how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? Did they have name tags on? Was it just absolutely clear and evident by what they said? Who they were? Does it matter? Whatever. What, what's going on here, Pastor? Or, or even did Christ tell them uh, this is who it was? That's you know, probably um, what's going on. The, uh, the neat thing about this is, is that these are two people who can stand in for the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, So Moses wrote the first five books of the scriptures, and he's the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt and uh, into the Promised Land. Uh, He's the one who is able to talk with God face to face, just as he's happening now. Uh, And uh, Elijah then is kind of the prophet par excellence, uh, which uh, signifies the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And one even has to wonder a little bit, is this a confluence of different times. I mean, is this Jesus as God talking to Moses as Moses is in the uh, the wilderness? You know, all these things we could speculate and wonder about. But what they're talking about is told to us. And they're talking about uh, Jesus and what he must accomplish here. Uh, and that is very, very important um, that they're talking about Jesus going to the cross, which signifies to us that uh, all Moses wrote is pointing ahead to that. All Elijah wrote and uh, uh, did is pointing ahead to that. All the Old Testament is looking ahead to Christ dying for sins. And if you listen to our show before, that shouldn't be a surprise. We've talked about that uh, all the way from Genesis chapter 3 onward, that everything is about Jesus uh, in the scriptures. Proclaiming the one. That's what the Bible does, isn't it? Uh, Pastor, in, uh, in our Matthew text here, which is our gospel reading for the transfiguration of our Lord, we know that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are carrying on a conversation. In uh, the gospel of Luke, 
we have one tiny little added detail. And in the Gospel of Luke, it says they are talking about his exodus, his exodus. Uh, now, I know that there are, are some uh, so-called biblical scholars that would scoff at, uh, you know, well, using another part of God's word to enlighten another part of uh, one part of God's word and all that. And that's just ridiculous. As you said, all of scripture points to Jesus. There's one capital A author, that's the Holy Spirit. And I think this is a, this is a time where that one little word from Luke really uh, sheds great light on that very conversation that you were talking about. Comments on that word Exodus. Yeah, um, and I think it helps inform our understanding of the Exodus itself also um, in the sense that um, there is some idea amongst people that the Exodus is simply the people of Israel passing through the Red Sea and to the, the land on the other side safely, which, I mean, that's the basic sense of it, but it also has this idea that they're headed towards the promised land, and to get there from this life of slavery and death into a promised land of life, they have to pass through water, uh, which teaches us about our baptisms as well. Uh, and so in the same way that Moses is the leader of the exodus from the slavery of Egypt into the promised land through water, now our Lord Jesus Christ is the leader of the exodus from this world of death and slavery into the promised land of heaven and eternal life and resurrection. And interestingly, then, the first step that we take in that, if, if you want to say that, I know that that's not good language there. The first step God does for us is he brings us through water and the word in our baptism uh, into that promised land. And so there are these parallels that are there that make it rather interesting to consider. And uh, not only, uh, you know, because Peter's pretty confused here. He wants to stay up on the mountain. He wants to uh, build three tabernacles, three tents. And uh, Jesus uh, doesn't stay on the mountain because he has an exodus. He is going to come down from the mountain and go to a different mountain. Not even really much of a mountain, but a hill. A, a piece bump. of bad rock from a quarry. Uh, there you go. There you go. So a couple of other things that we want to uh, uh, talk about here in the text. Um, the, uh, while, Jesus, while Peter was still babbling on and on, you know, uh, "'Tis good Lord to be here." Yeah, that's uh, where he's singing that song and building the tents, and he doesn't want to leave, wants to stay with his mountaintop experience. And, and even the tents are important. I mean, that's where God was contained in the Old Testament is in the tabernacle, in that tent. That's where he lived, and so... Peter, at least, is acknowledging who this is. I think it's interesting because without the cross and resurrection, he still doesn't understand Jesus, even when he knows that he's God. And uh, John 1, 14, Jesus pitched his tent. He tabernacled himself among us, taking on flesh and blood. There's a lot there. While Peter was still talking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The bright cloud and the voice. Pastor? Yeah, uh, this is the voice of God the Father uh, speaking to signify again who Jesus is, and this reflects then also what took place at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ when God the Father said the same things, except now we have one additional word. Um, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, the word that Christ says is very important, and uh, this 
word I would say is there for Moses and for Elijah and then also for the apostles and then also for us. We ought to listen to the word of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that sermon then is uh, complete in that regard. Vicar, when uh, the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Uh, why? Why did they fall on their faces? Why were they terrified? It's a natural reaction when you're sinful and made of sin when it comes to something holy and perfect facing you to be terrified right to the right to the core right to death it's the same as if uh, when an angel appears and has to say fear not jesus also does this because um in their sinful condition they they can't stand to be around holiness without dying uh pastor i can't help but think that when uh, jesus is cornered in the garden of gethsemane and uh, they want to know who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I am he. Uh, immediately they fell down and were terrified. Is this a falling down of fear, a falling down of worship? What, what is this here? In the Garden of Gethsemane, I think uh, in that case it is out of fear, but I think it reflects then what happened in the Old Testament when uh, God appeared to Moses. Uh, maybe we could say Jesus appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am that I am. That same sort of thing, God hidden in the fire in the burning bush is now hidden in the person of Jesus. And when uh, the identity of God is made known, we have no choice but to fall on our face, uh, whether out of fear or reverence or worship or any of that. That's just the reality of what happens because we're not holy and he is. We are fearful people because, as Vicar said, we're full of sin and God is holy. Not, I guess the point I was trying to make is not every reference to people falling down in front of Jesus means that they acknowledge him as Lord and God and are worshiping. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd, yeah, that's fair. Okay, so Jesus then, uh, when uh, they fell on their feet, Jesus came, he touched them and said, rise and have no fear. That looks an awful lot and sounds an awful lot like the absolution. Is uh, uh, Can we make that connection, Pastor? I think so, and I think even the fact that... Um Jesus, who's been glowing, now touches them, uh, reflects also Isaiah. When Isaiah is in heaven before the holy, 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 they take the burning coal and touch his lips. Uh, and the, what's it's from the altar of heaven where Christ is offered as the sacrifice for sin, and now Christ, the sacrifice for sin, is touching them and uh, absolving them the same way. And um, not that our pastors are Jesus, they are not, but they are ambassadors for him. And so when they absolve you on a personal level, they often, oftentimes put their hand on your head to absolve you as well. Uh, this is the same thing. The word, the word, the word does the work, and oftentimes it's accompanied by a touch. That uh, connection to Isaiah 6 is uh, wonderful and amazing. And when we know our Bible, when we know our Old Testament stories, the uh, connection between what's going on with the person work of Jesus is amazing. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One. When we come back, we're going to take a look at that whole uh, burning bush thing, Isaiah or Exodus 3, 1 to 14. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Trust in you, 
You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. You are the way, the truth, the life. That's Jesus. That's the one that we proclaim. That's the one that we cling to. That's the one who is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome, the light that shines for you, Jesus, Savior, Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking at the readings for the transfiguration of our Lord. In our first two segments, we looked at the gospel reading, Matthew 17, 1 to 9. And now we want to take a look at our Old Testament reading. It's a little longer narrative. Exodus 3, 1 to 14. Vicar, take it away. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay, we've got uh, many, many sermons that we could preach just on that text, Pastor. So we're just going to have to uh, cherry pick some highlights. It is, uh, it is an awesome narrative. And uh, maybe, maybe sometime for the future, I'll plant this seed in the back of your head. Maybe we could have a five or six part Wednesday Lenten series 
on Genesis or on uh, Exodus chapter three because there is so much here. Um, Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Um, how did Moses get from little baby in the basket, who is rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, all the way to taking care of the sheep with Jethro? Can you give us uh, a short, little, concise narrative of the life of Moses, how he got here. Yeah, Moses is born, um, and I mean, we could get kind of a guess anyways to when, and even uh, the pharaohs that were involved here. Moses is born, and the pharaoh is alarmed at the growth of the people of Israel because now there's more and more of them. Uh, this follows a kind of a time of difficulty between the Egyptians and the Hyksos, and uh, that's coming to an end, and so the new pharaoh is trying to assert power, and he's alarmed by this. So he has the um, Israelites, they're required to abort their babies. Uh, now, to do it back then, what that meant was they're exposing them into the Nile River. Uh, so Moses is floated into the Nile River in a basket. The daughter of Pharaoh sees Moses and rescues him and raises him. And uh, Moses eventually grows up. Uh, Josephus accounts re- recounts for us that Moses had become a military leader in Egypt. Whether that's true or not, the scripture doesn't tell us, but that's what Josephus says. Um, and uh, eventually, Eventually, Moses uh, kills an Egyptian, feels guilty about it, and so he flees away. And so he flees up through the Sinai Peninsula and down into Midian, um, which is um, where he meets Jethro's daughter at a well. And um, she gets water for him, and he falls in love. And uh, there you have the—this is a common theme in the Scripture as well. You meet your wife at the well, um, not the local bar, but the well. And uh, so they fall in love, and he— becomes a son-in-law and is uh, now watching the the sheep and the flocks of uh, Jethro out here in Midian. Midian is likely in western Saudi Arabia today, uh, and so just kind of put an idea of where that might be. Okay, and so uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, and yet we have this burning bush that is aflame and does not get consumed. Uh, are these two separate things, or is the angel in the bush? Um, the angel is in the bush, and in fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the angel of the Lord, the Malik Yahweh, uh, oftentimes is treated as if he is God, and in fact, probably is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And so it's likely that this is Jesus before he has a body speaking to Moses, which is then the connection to our gospel lesson. When uh God identifies himself. You know, we have the, you know, you're standing on holy ground, take off your sandals, uh, all these all these wonderful uh, pit word pictures there for us, teaching us the holiness and reverence of God. When God reveals himself to him, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Uh, this revelation of who God is, um, why is this significant? And then I want to fast forward to the end because it doesn't seem to be enough for Moses. There seems to be something lacking here because he, he, he wants to know God's name. 
Um, isn't this God's name? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Uh, help me out there. Well, um, yeah, he, he wants to know God's name. First off, the identity that he receives is important. Uh, Moses is the son of Amram, who's the son of Kohath, who's the son of Levi, who's the son of Jacob. And so, I mean, he's talking about his great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, etc. I'm that God is what God is identifying himself as. But uh, Moses says, I want to know your name, and that's kind of a way to familiarize yourself, a way to use uh uh, the other person and trust them, and that's what Moses is asking for here. And um, God gives him the name "I am that I am," which is that interesting thing. God's existence—that's who He is. He's the one who exists, the real God, the true God, and uh, and that allows then Moses to use His name properly as we pray in the Catechism and uh, in the the Lord's Prayer, and uh, also then in the Ten Commandments. When uh, God is explaining to him what's going to happen. And I'm looking here at Exodus 3, verse 8. He says, yeah, I know the affliction, I know the sufferings. And then in verse 8, he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. And he goes on. Is there any significance to the coming down and bringing up language. Well, uh, when he says come down, he's talking about from heaven, which is the same language we use in talking about Christ and his incarnation that uh, we say it in the creed, right? Uh, came down, uh, descended from heaven. And, wow, I've got it all confused in my head right now, but we use the same sort of language in the creed. Uh, the going up language then is significant also in this sense that uh, whenever you're traveling upward in the scripture, it means you're traveling closer to Jerusalem, and whenever you're traveling downward, you're traveling away from Jerusalem. And that's the same idea then here. The promised land is up because that's the place that's better and closer to God. And so we have both those things contained in this little section here. Down and up. Can I can I think of uh, death and resurrection in that word picture as well, or am I stretching that? I think you can, so long as you understand the other parts first. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, Moses, at first, is very, very excited that God is there. Uh, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then when God tells him what he's going to do, uh, I will send you to Pharaoh. You may bring my people, the children of Israel, out. But Moses said to him, uh, who am I uh, that I should go to Pharaoh? What happened here between this uh, seeming excitement and joy of Moses to be called upon by God to the rejection of the seeming rejection of the task that God had given him? Well, what does um, traveling back to Egypt require for Moses? Uh, not only is he giving up his life to serve God, maybe that's not as big an issue in his mind, but when he goes back to Egypt, he's going to have to deal with the things that he's done in the past, his own sin, uh, his murder of the Egyptian, his um, separation from his people and things like that. And he's afraid to do that. And this is often the way all of us deal with sin, right? It's easier to forget about it, to move forward, than to actually receive absolution or confess it or speak about it or think about it and deal with 
deal with it. So we take the easy route out, and that's what Moses is kind of doing here as well. Uh, Wouldn't it be easier, God, if someone else did this since I murdered that person in Egypt? Wouldn't it be easier if someone else did that since uh, I I lived like an Egyptian and uh, mistreated uh, my people, et cetera, et cetera? There are many connections that we could make between the Old Testament reading in Exodus 3 and the gospel from Matthew 17, the transfiguration of our Lord. But it is this fear aspect that I want to talk about in the time we have left. The disciples were afraid. Jesus touches them and takes away their fear. Moses is afraid, obviously. He doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to lose his skin. And in verse 12 of Exodus 3, God says to Moses, but I will be with you. Is that the gospel? Is that the absolution? It is, and it also is uh, the same sort of thing that Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 28, and I think that's why it's so easy for us to see this burning bush as the pre-incarnate Christ here. Uh, he's, He's making promises, these good news promises, which are always related to absolution, and that's what he's doing here. It's what he did before he ascended into heaven and sent us out into the church. Um, it's what God is always doing. He is Emmanuel, God with us, as, again, Isaiah says. So We have uh, Isaiah or uh, Exodus chapter 3. We have God revealing himself in the burning bush. We have God giving us his name, Yahweh, uh, I am that I am. We have God taking action to deliver his people. And we have God, who could have done it just with the snap of his fingers, God working through, dare I say, Pastor Moses to to bring this about. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to uh, say it. And how does Moses do it? With a word, uh, which uh, tells us Moses was a Lutheran also. Uh, as uh, all these people in these scriptures are, they're all Lutherans. They believe that God's word does what it says. And isn't it amazing? The, the angel in the burning bush wasn't recognized by Moses until the bush speaks. Ponder that for a moment. When we come back, we want to take a look at our epistle reading, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, Peter's account of the transfiguration of our Lord. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP. 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Golden, we are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We'd love to have you worship with us. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. We're located at 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. We also have Wednesday worship year-round, 6.30 p.m. So please join us. You can listen to any of our worship services live on KNNALP 95.7. You can check us out on uh, the website, your handheld device, download the app, www.thecross957.org. Love to have your feedback, and we thank you for 
tuning in and listening to Proclaiming the One each week. We're looking at the readings for the transfiguration of our Lord in our first two segments. We looked at the gospel reading from Matthew 17. In our third segment, we looked at Exodus chapter 3, 1 to 14. And now in our final segment, we want to take a look at the epistle reading. And uh, this, is, this is one of my favorite epistle readings in all of Scripture. And it comes from, of all places, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. Vicar, take it away. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we have one of the more famous and more important Bible passages from all of Scripture uh, right here in Second Peter talking about uh, Holy Scripture. This is, uh, this is one of our primary texts in catechism class when we're teaching people the importance of God's Word, what the word inspiration means in Holy Scripture. But before we get to that, I want to go back to the very beginning. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. Um, it seems almost as if Peter is talking about uh, the History Channel, uh, the Da Vinci Code, uh, all of these, th the Gospel according to Judas, all of these things that are floating around in our world, our 21st century world, right here. Um, Pastor, I guess... Did they have those kind of cleverly devised myths? I mean, apart from cable TV and the Internet, did they have the same kind of nonsense going on? I think every age has, and so it is there to a certain extent. We also have uh, Peter, in some senses, talking about uh, we didn't make this up. It really truly happened. In some sense, he's talking about the uh, the Greeks and the Romans and the things that they had invented that they followed where, um, you know, the— Trojan Wars and then the uh, Aeneid and uh, the foundation of their own state and their religious piety. Uh, and so he's putting all these things down, and basically what he's saying is our religion is the one true religion. And uh, the reason that I know that is because I was an eyewitness and I saw it, and uh, here's what I saw. So we have um, cleverly devised myths that are in every generation— 
as you said, and these have been going on since the beginning of time. You know, we have the uh, uh, Gilgamesh epic that yep. tries to uh, build upon or have their own flood event. Uh, you know, we have people trying to copy, mimic, or exceed the Holy Scriptures almost from or, day one. Or or even, I mean, I like Gilgamesh because... Um, it's almost every society that exists across the world says there was some big worldwide flood in the past, and uh, it's almost like maybe there really was, and everybody is recording it differently because some people have the true understanding of what happened, and some people just remember the flood part. Amen. That's, a, that's an excellent point, an excellent point. So in the midst of all these cleverly devised myths, or maybe we could even say the way that you can tell a cleverly devised myth from the truth is... Is there eyewitness testimony? And I can't help but think of the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so here we have the eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration. And it's clear you don't really know if he's talking about the baptism of our Lord or the transfiguration of our Lord at the beginning. And then he talks about what happens on the mountain. So he narrows it down for us, and so we know specifically that he's talking about the events of the transfiguration. Um, and he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." I want to focus on when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God. I thought Jesus had honor and glory on his own. What's, uh, what's going on here, Pastor, with Jesus receiving honor and glory from the Father? Well, I, I guess one way to think about it would be, uh, you know, over in England they have those uh, royal people, right? And uh, so... The Charles, ones, the ones that have not abdicated their crown, right? Charles, Charles is born the crown prince, and he has that authority. Uh, and any time that his mom dies, he'll become the king. And yet, the truth is, is that they also had this special ceremony uh, in Wales when, in back in the '60s or '70s, where the power was bestowed upon him, and the glory and the honor were bestowed upon him officially. In that sense, and it's not to say that Christ doesn't officially have that, but it's for our sake that we might understand who He is, just as that ceremony took place for Charles, so that the people would understand. Uh, also, that happens for us here with Jesus. Jesus in several places when a voice comes from heaven, Jesus says, hey, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Right. Uh, and I think that that uh, uh, hits exactly what you are talking about. Uh, the honor and glory bestowed upon him was so that the, the people who are witnessing the event know what's going on and, rather than being left in the dark. And I think it's so great then that Peter says, and how did we know this was happening? Because we have that prophetic word, the sure and certain word, the word, the word, the word that reveals that this power and glory and honor is bestowed upon Christ. That's our certainty and our hope and our trust. And the great thing about that is we don't have to be up on the mountain. We don't have to see the transfigured Jesus. We don't have to see Moses and Elijah. All we have to do is listen to what God's word clearly says, and then we have our certainty about who Jesus is and why he's come. That's an excellent point because uh, we are not eyewitnesses in the same way that 
Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration. We are not eyewitnesses the same way that Moses was an eyewitness with regard to the burning bush. And Peter here uh, says something that uh, really catches us off guard. He says, we have something more sure. Now, when you go to a court of law, there is nothing more sure than an eyewitness testimony. Is there? Isn't that the crazy thing, right? You'd think that would be, but you get a good lawyer who can tear it apart and say, are you sure you saw this? Are you sure you saw that? Uh, or even, um, you know, if you see something crazy, you are asking yourself later, did that, did that really truly happen? You know, is that, is that real or did I just imagine it? And how do you know for sure? Well, if it's written down, if it's true, if it's come from a reliable source, and Peter says, um, you have the reliable surf, the prophet source the prophetic word of god that's where our trust and our hope ought to be the uh, peter's this, a lutheran here right yeah there there you go this uh, this word that is more sure than your feelings than your thoughts than your mountaintop experiences this sure and certain objective truth is the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, the inspired, inerrant Word of God, holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the same way that God enlightens us with who Jesus is, why he has come, and grants us the gift of faith. Pastor, something that uh, struck my head as Vicar was, uh, was reading, you know, this is Transfiguration Sunday, where we talk about a lot about light, and uh, the glowing Jesus and all this. Um, notice all the light imagery that is going on in, uh, in this particular text. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. We're talking here about Scripture, right? We're talking about the Word of God that is light, um, light shining in a dark, a lamp shining in a dark place, the dawning day, the morning star. These three beautiful references about light that you would think would be about Jesus are talking about the prophetic Word, the Holy Scriptures. What do we make of that? Well, I would um, not divide the word and Jesus. I mean, uh, we have very clearly in John's gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Uh, Jesus is the word, uh, and the word is Jesus. And so we can't separate those two things, and that's why then we revere God's word so greatly is because it we believe that really is Jesus uh, being present among us. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among you. And that's the reality that we confess and believe as Christians. That's the amazing part of this text. Nobody has any problem hearing these words extolling Jesus as a lamp shining in a dark place, as the bright morning star, all these wonderful things. But when we see that these things are not only Jesus, but the very word of Jesus, the very word of God, that is like our revelation here in Second Peter 
chapter one. Oh, I hate to uh, I hate to bring things to a close, but we are sadly out of time on uh, this day as we are looking at the readings for the transfiguration of our Lord. Vicar, would you be so kind as to draw things to a close and pray for us the collect of the day? Let us pray. O oh God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you, cons- you confirmed the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshadowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory, and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Thank you for tuning in to Proclaiming the One on behalf of Pastor Adam Oline and Vicar Daniel Golden. I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Join us again next week, won't you? And remember, Sunday morning, when you get up, drink your coffee, read your paper, please pray for your pastor, and most importantly, go to church. We'll see you again next week.